we get to the most interesting and meaty part of this story. And tonight we're going to get into the romance of the story as well. So there's a lot of interesting things ahead of us. Uh, but even as, as we get into this and as we read this, this passage, I want you to notice many have thought of, of Ruth as just a love story. And, and there is something to learn about love and proper Christian marriage. But I think primarily Ruth is a story about godly character. And you've seen a representation of that even as we've gone through these verses. And godliness that, that is refined and, and even purified in the foundry of faith. Just like when we have you know, gold and silver, we seek to have it refined so that impurities would be removed from that. And Peter even talks about that in First Peter, that trials are that foundry that God uses again in His love, again in His providence, to produce even greater refinement in that gold that needs to be in the heart of the Christian. And so you can see that being expressed in this particular section that was just read for us. Trials are a school that God puts us through so that we may learn new things. You know, I think in some ways, one of the marks of sin in, in my own life, in our life, is the killing of curiosity and a stagnation in life. I remember when I was in college, uh, my advisor, because I wanted to study Bible, he sat me down and he said, Sammy, you're falling into a trap of just choosing the path of least resistance. You just want to do things that you like and you love. And he said, if you want to really grow as a Christian man, and this is one of the best pieces of advice I, I listened to, he said, branch out into history, branch out into science, even, even dabble a little bit in music, and take classes that are even outside of the disciplines that are easy for you, so that you may become a man of greater growth and character that God can use. And he was absolutely right, I think, just even in, in, in education, that if we stretch ourselves out of our fields of interest, in the sense that all knowledge comes from God, that we will become better even at the field that God has gifted us for. And I'm sure many of you have seen that in your own life. But even more so, the best way to be stretched from paths of least resistance and things that come easy to us that oftentimes because of depravity are paths of sin, is for God to put us through the school of trials. And in the school of trials, He causes us to learn and grow things that we would normally never learn and normally never seek to pursue. And that is part of His goodness, isn't it? And as Spurgeon says, again, I told you I'm going to irritate you, Spurgeon. He says, you need to kiss the trials in your life so that God may do those good things that He seeks to do. For his glory. You know, Romans 8.28 is speaking exactly of that. I often misunderstood this verse as a young Christian, and as I memorized it or read it, God works all things for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I used to mistranslate that verse and say, instead of God causes all things, just that God causes good things. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says that God causes all things, which even includes the trials of our life, to ultimately produce that which is good, which would be faith that shines for God. And so you can see this passage where the Lord is the teacher in these characters. We see Naomi, we see Ruth, and we see Boaz teaching us what they are learning from the school of faith through the ultimate teacher, 
of life, and that is the Lord of heaven. And so let's learn with them. And in, in some ways, we get to walk along. It, it's, it's, it's good for us. We're not experiencing these trials ourselves, but we get to walk along with some people that are being pressed by God and learn from them how we may grow in the school of trials. Four lessons, I think, through these characters. Four lessons that God teaches us in trials and teaches us through these characters. And the first we find in Naomi. Have you gotten to love Naomi a little bit as you've, you've seen some of the things that she did, even her, her call to count the cost to these daughter-in-laws that she loved and, and that loved her, but she wanted them to have a greater love that would last into eternity. And so now we see in verses 19 through 22, as just the end of chapter 1, as Naomi returns to Bethlehem, her home, where they came from, we see an amazing attitude of humble repentance. And so the first lesson that God teaches us in trials is this. We learn this from Naomi. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. What is your temptation when you go through trials? Is it to find the most wise, experienced, human counselor, even pastor that you can cry out to? We lean on those that ultimately don't have the resources. And what Naomi teaches us is the first person that we must cry out to is the Lord himself. Most commentators look at this section in verses 19 through 21 and they say, Naomi's weak and she's using all this language. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And, and, and they, they begin to really demean her and, and make her seem like, like she is not responding well to trials. But I just want to challenge you to, to think about this. The Bible doesn't teach us that it is spiritual maturity to always be jumping around and saying hallelujah when things are not going well in your life. In fact, if you, if you read the Psalms, did you know one-third of the Psalms are lament Psalms? And what they show is that honesty with God is more mature than sometimes some of this spiritual just joyous frothiness that we, we tend to, to demonstrate, maybe in church. At a home, we're more honest with our wives, right? Or with our husbands. But God is saying, would you be honest with me as well? And so I think that's one of those lessons. It can even be a sense of just relief to be bathed in this reality that God doesn't want you to fake it. If you're suffering, you can lament. And you can cry out to Him. And the one person that you can cry out to, honestly, should be your Father in heaven. And that's one of the ways that he can even refresh you and, and be that, that shepherd in your soul to restore you and put you back in paths of peace and righteousness. And so the first thing that Naomi does, it's very interesting, when she comes back to Bethlehem, there was something about her appearance in verse 19 that caused the whole city to come out and, and literally be stirred like a pot of Indian curry, right? <laughs> it was not stable anymore. The whole city came out and they said, this woman, we recognize her from a decade or so ago, but she looks like something miserable has happened to her. They saw it in her appearance and she was, she was manifesting it. And they came out with this expression even saying, is this Naomi? Is this the one who, who left in, in, in that sense of you know, being part of a, a family that was wealthy and a family that was, was doing well? Is this that same lady? And I love the, the response of Naomi 
If it was me, I would have been completely immature at this point and said, yeah, that, that crazy husband, Elimelech, it's all his fault. But she doesn't curse her husband. You know, one of the things we do, we, we're like Adam, right? It's not my fault. If you had given me a better wife, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And that's, that's the way he responded to God. But Naomi shows a, a higher level of walking with the Lord. She doesn't curse her husband. She doesn't curse the circumstances. She doesn't say, I was in a bad you know, situation. I couldn't help it. But she doesn't blame anyone else except herself. Something we need to learn as we're humbling ourselves and crying out before God. I think one of the things that we fail in is, yeah, Lord, I'm in a bad situation, but you know, it's all the people around me that I need to confess sin for. You can't confess anybody else's sin except your own. It's one of the first secrets of growing in the grace of God. You can't confess your husband's sin. You can't confess your wife's sin. You've got to confess your own sin when you walk before the Lord. And so she does that. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because Shaddai, the Almighty, and I love him because he's powerful even in all of this. I don't understand what he's doing, but he's Almighty even when he has his heavy hand on me. He has dealt bitterly with me. And I don't see that as a statement of fighting with God. I just see that as a statement of being honest with God and saying, I will acknowledge my sin and I will acknowledge that all that has happened in my life is the hand of God. And she laments. It's, it's good to, to weep over her, over her sin. It's good for us to weep over our sin and the tragedy and the burdens of life and to say, I recognize that it's not Satan, as Martin Luther used to say, Satan is just God's little devil. He doesn't have sovereignty. And sometimes we begin to, to look at all these other forces that might be in control of our life, but ultimately, even when we're going through the great valleys of life, it is only one who is on his throne, who is in charge of even the bitter circumstances. It is Shaddai. It is the Almighty. And that is the beginning of of, of crying out to God in an honest way that can cause restoration and healing in our life. That's what Job did. That's what the psalmist used to do. Job said in Job 27, verse 2, As God lives who has taken away my right, and the Shaddai, again the same word, the sovereignty of God, who has embittered my soul. I am in this situation. Psalm 77, verse 1, My voice rises to God, and I will cry, and I will weep aloud even. With great honesty, my voice rises to God because He will hear me. God is not ashamed to hear His people crying out and weeping honestly to Him about the tragedies of their life. Being honest about our weakness is the beginning of getting strength from the one place that we need. The throne in heaven. But not only does she humble herself, but she also honors the Lord. She doesn't blame God. She doesn't say God is evil, but she honors the Lord. She exalts the Lord. She calls him Shaddai, even again in verse 20. For the Almighty has dwelt bitterly with me, the sovereign one under whose wings we might find refuge, gives not only blessing, but even gives discipline. You remember Job's words to his wife? The Lord gives, but the Lord also takes away. And I will worship the Lord for both those things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have a song, right, that we sing. Did you know that that song was written, I forget the guy's name, was it Matt Redman? Uh, it was written after 
in response to 9-11 specifically. And I think he was right in that response. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're not thanking God for the tragedies of the trials, but we're saying that even in this trial, we will recognize that this is from God, and so we will plead with Him for deliverance. We won't see this as a situation where there is no way out. And so she, she does honor the Lord. She, she, she is like Job in that sense. And she says in, in verse 21, I went out full, but who has done this? Yahweh has brought me back empty. I don't understand all his purposes, but I would just say this, even though I don't understand, I know him and he is good. And he is sovereign. Why do you call me Naomi? Cry out with me to Yahweh, since Yahweh has witnessed against me and the Almighty Shaddai has afflicted me. We see another element here. She's honestly admitting her sin. She's saying that in the throne room of heaven, there was a testimony that came from Yahweh that said Naomi is a sinner. And I don't know the details of this. Again, we can only speculate because as you look at this text, you're thinking it's all Elimelech's fault. It's all those men's fault. But as she, as she speaks to the, the city, she's even saying, Yahweh has testified against me. You know, here's one reality. None of us is sinless. And I think one of the things we need to learn how to do, like Jesus said, is stop talking about all the specks in our brother's eyes. <laughs> we need to start confessing the logs in our own eye. You won't have time to think about those specks. This is going to refresh our marriages, isn't it? <laughs> Some of the wives would say, hallelujah. But that's exactly where Naomi is. She's honestly taking the blame, saying, Yahweh, you are righteous, and in your court, I am a sinner, and I'm not going to think about Elimelech or anything else. I'm going to say, Lord, you purify me and help me to deal with my sin and help me to be restored by your redeeming grace. She sees some sins that she's committed, and I don't know what that may be. Maybe she should have spoken up more, like I said to Elimelech. Maybe she should have done some things, but in her own mind, in her own heart, and the text doesn't specify, she knows her sin. Do you know your sin? It will make you less of a bitter person as you deal with the trials in your life. The moment you think you're sinless, you're going to fight with God. The moment you realize that, you know, I deserve some of the hottest portions of hell, <laughs> but for Jesus saying it is finished on the cross, it's going to give you a little bit of a different perspective on the trials in your life. And that's what caused Naomi to just have this even sweet and sober spirit as she was coming back in the lament of her heart to Bethlehem. And you get this, this hint of hope at the end in verse 22. And Naomi returned with her with her Ruth, the Moabitess. This, you're going to find this indictment again and again that Ruth is there only because of grace. No one from Moab should be in the assembly of Israel. But God has brought her back. Even though, like Paul, she's the chief of sinners. She's from Moab. Like you and me. We don't deserve to be in this place experiencing the grace of God. We were sinners. And so she's back with her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab. And here's the hint of the sovereign hope that God is going to bring into their lives. 
they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's about four months where there's going to be food provided. And God is going to give them a sense of sustenance. There's going to be bread in Israel. Isaiah 57 verse 15 For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. But I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't our God a great God? There isn't that sense of isolation and even snobbishness that we find sometimes with people on this earth that are rich and resourceful. Sometimes on this earth, the more you have that is high and exalted, you disconnect yourself from people that are low and contrite. You don't even see them sometimes. But our God is such a God that even though He's higher and more exalted than anyone else, that highness, if you will, enables Him to be a resource to the lowest person on this earth. And He lifts them up. And that's what you're going to see is going to happen to this dear lady and then also to Ruth. And so the first lesson we learn from the foundry of faith is cry out to the Lord. How are you at this? You know, are you the kind of person that has just those Christian, honest lies that we say to each other, white lies that we say to each other? How are you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. You know? And inside you're just full of all kinds of anxiety. The sad thing is we do the same thing with the Lord. And He knows our heart. Who are we fooling? May the Lord make us more like Naomi. May the Lord make us more like the psalmist. May the Lord even make us more like Christ, who even cried out with great honest anguish before he went to the greatest trial that he had for you and me on the cross. May we become like that, and that will become the means of grace in our life. But not only do we see a crying out to the Lord demonstrated in Naomi, I think one of the things we can do is we can just cry out to the Lord and then pull the blanket over our head and say, Ooh, come soon, Lord Jesus, you know, and just not do anything else. And so we find a second lesson, and now we find this lesson from Ruth, and that is hard-working service. First we cry out, but don't allow that crying out to just make you inactive and paralyzed and just eat chocolates and, you know, just watch TV and do nothing. But you cry out, and then you say, okay, Lord, whatever it is that is in front of me, can I serve you? Can I serve you? Even in the midst of my trial, even in the midst of my poverty, sometimes poverty can be the greatest place where God can teach you ministry. We don't often learn ministry in the good times in life. Haven't you seen that in your life? But we often learn how to minister to others when we are beaten down and we experience the comfort of God and then we're able to comfort others with the same comfort that we have been received because He's the God of all comfort. And so we find this in Ruth in chapter 2 as she shows us a cultivation of service. A cultivation. It has to be cultivated. I would say service is a gift from God but it has to be cultivated. And we find this, this uh, the amazing sense of, of Ruth, the first thing that she wants to do is just serve. Serve Naomi and ultimately serve the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Now Naomi had a kinsman. By the way, this isn't the word goel yet. It's going to come later. But this is just an initial idea. That a relative of her husband, a man of great wealth. And I, I don't like that translation. I think actually the emphasis is not on the money that Boaz had, 
but literally in the Hebrew, it's a man of great strength, and it was used in the Old Testament for warriors. Now, I don't think this is saying that Boaz went to the gym regularly and you know, he was built, but I think it's talking more about the strength that we're going to see demonstrated later on, spiritual strength. A man who was mighty in God. We're going to see this a little bit later. Whose name was Boaz. The word Boaz, I was talking to some, some people earlier, literally means strength. And then, what happens? I mean, this is the means of grace that, that Ruth is able to and Naomi is able to look to in terms of service. They look to God's goodness. They look to what God can provide. And God always has some means of provision for us. We just have to open our eyes and look for it, right? Even in the greatest valleys, we have to look for God's grace. And that's what we see in even this first verse. I, I grew up this way. Again, just looking at this kind of perspective in my dad, who, when I was born, uh, quit his job, and, and so did my mom, because they wanted to go into ministry and live by faith. And, you know, I, I want to just say to you, uh, it's not important what kind of house we lived in or what kind of circumstances we lived in, but I want to say to you that there was joy in experiencing the provisions of God every day of our lives, and we never lacked anything. And that's because one of my dad's favorite verses was Psalm 37, verse 25. I've been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. And that's true. We just have to look up and God will provide his goodness and he will even show the world in some ways how he is stronger than anything that they can provide. George Mueller lived like that, didn't he? And the Lord allowed him to do so much more than people that had money. It's just amazing, isn't it? In England. May God, God, God build more people like this in our day and age that live by God's goodness even more than the goodness of this earth. Looking to him in faith. But not only does she look to God's goodness, Naomi and Ruth, but then Ruth also learns obedience in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite, see the initiative comes from where? Naomi doesn't have to kick her in the rear and say, get out there and do something, right? She comes, and this is the way it should be in the Christian community. She comes to her mom-in-law and she says, please, can I serve? You know, pastors are going to die and go to heaven if more people do this kind of thing in the church. It's just saying, brother, sister, would you do this? Way? Pastor, would you please let me serve? I'm getting so irritated because you're not letting me serve, pastor. And that's the way Ruth was motivated because she had seen the love of Christ in her own life. And in that, she said, Lord, can I give back? Because I can never give back ultimately. But can I do something? And so she comes to her mom-in-law and she says, even the Hebrew is, please let me, please let me, twist my arm and let me go to the field and glean among the years of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She's looking for grace, favor, as a servant or a beggar would from a master. But she recognizes that even in that way, that favor and that grace comes from hard work. It doesn't just fall in your lap. And you have to go out there and serve in, in order to see that grace cultivated in your life. It, it even shows that Ruth, in some ways, was reading the Pentateuch 
and she was looking at a specific verse like Deuteronomy 24:19 that said when you reap your harvest in the field and obviously as you're doing that you're going to forget and drop some sheaves in the field don't go back to get it this is the instruction to landowners and farm owners leave that there for the alien for the orphan for the widow in order that Yahweh your God may bless you as the farm owner in all the work of your land don't try to extract everything that you have. Let some stuff fall down so that there may be the poor and the destitute, not through just a dole or welfare, but through work, get that and be able to feed their families. Now, here's the thing. Ruth is not just going up to Naomi and saying, let me think of something that I can do. You know? No, she's looking at specific words of God and she's saying, can I do this because this was given as an instruction in the word of God? And can I go and glean in a field? And Naomi just brings some food to you? What an amazing expression of faith, right? Naomi, I think she's just so totally surprised. She just says, go, my daughter. She's just completely amazed by the love that this, this girl is showing to her. And God blesses her with providence. Look at verse 3. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and the Hebrew is so again humorous here she just happened you know sometimes we use the word and she just lucked upon and I think it's a little bit of a joke to come on the portion of the field belonging to the first field that she came to was the field of Boaz she didn't plan it she just happened to come across that field but when we choose to obey Proverbs 16.33 happens, right? Even when you throw the lot or you cast dice, even that, that we call luck, what is Proverbs 16? But every decision that happens is from the Lord. Now, don't go out there you know, into your Monopoly games and say, Lord, give me a double six, okay? But it's the idea that nothing happens by chance. And you don't have to worry about what God does. But when you choose to obey in sovereignty, God will do amazing things. And in a sense, sovereignty always causes us to walk out in great confidence and say, God can do amazing things in my life. Because of the doctrine of election, sovereignty, we go out and evangelize because we know that God will save. I have one of my students, he's working with the Brokpa tribe in an uh, uh, area on the border of India and Tibet and the Himalayas. He and his wife, his wife is a nurse, uh, and they have two kids. They get snowed in six, six months out of the year. And then they have no access to get out. And it's a difficult life for them. And he started translating and giving a script to these people. They don't even have a script. They just have a spoken language so that they can have the gospel of Mark. This is what this brother is doing in their hands. And they can come to know the gospel of Christ. And I, I said to him, you know, I said, why are you working in this difficult area? He said, brother, it's because... God promised that he has elected and chosen a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and I know there are some people here that are his. And I'm going to stay here until he finds them. The sovereignty of God helps us to obey, doesn't it? It doesn't make us lazy. Because of election, we want to go out and evangelize. Amen? Because of sovereignty we want to obey we live in a world that is not ruled by chance praise God we live in a world that is ruled by God. We serve a great commander and that should produce a great commitment. 
And so Ruth cultivates service. And now we meet Boaz, and we're going to spend a lot of time on Boaz, this man of strength. All the way in verse 4 to 13, we learn, just to recap again, from the school of faith, from the school of trials, cry out to the Lord from Naomi. Cultivate service from Ruth. And from Boaz, and this is going to be a longer section because there's so much good stuff to learn here, we learn the third lesson from the school of trials, and that is care through godliness. It's not enough to just care and be compassionate. We must care through the means of righteousness, through the means of godliness. And Boaz shows, again, he's a man of great strength, of great power in godliness and through that he's able to become a shelter and a shade and a provider for others in trials you may be thinking you know i'm seeing people go through trials maybe in the church maybe in my community and i want to provide for them and the first thing that we think about is maybe money or maybe resources or i'll give them a job and all those things have their place but ultimately as believers we provide through godliness through righteousness that's what boaz teaches us he's a rich man in this society, but he's counted the cost and lives for Yahweh and thus for others. And, and by the way, you know, Jesus did say, it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he didn't say it's impossible. Because someone has just right away <laughs> rich men and, and women and said there's no place for them in the kingdom of God. But praise God for a man like this even, that lives even with the riches that God has given him to think of not himself, but to think of others. Just find this wonderful balance in the scriptures. And so in Boaz, a a care that takes place through godly power. There's four characteristics of godly power that we find in Boaz. The first is in verse 4, just briefly, is a sense of consecration. His life is consecrated to God. He's a boss that starts the day with his workers. He doesn't show up late, you know. You guys get there, open the office and I'll be there at 11 o'clock for lunch, okay? No, but he's there early in the morning, but he's not just there early in the morning to open up. He's there early in the morning for one specific reason, and that's to direct their hearts towards God, even in work. Like Luther used to say, even work is worship. We don't want to compartmentalize our lives and say, oh, we worship just on Sunday. By the way, sometimes I, I get a little saddened when we even compartmentalize worship on Sunday, and The singing is worship, and then the word is something else. It's all worship, isn't it? It's just different ways of worshiping. But then we get out of Sunday, and we're like, okay, now I stopped worshiping. I've got to wait seven days to worship. Now, every day, whether you eat or you drink, whether you're washing dishes at home, whether you're, you know, changing diapers, I know that sounds weird, but everything that you do is ultimately worship as you're thinking about serving others and serving God, isn't it? It changes our perspective on life. And so Boaz starts the day with what? In verse 4, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May Yahweh be with you. If some of you have been in Middle Eastern countries, you've heard uh, the greeting, Salam Alaikum, right? It's very similar to this in terms of peace be with you, but it's not as good. What Boaz does is he takes it to a higher level. He doesn't say peace be with you, But he says, I want to give you more than peace because I want to give you the source of peace and the source of all sustenance. Yahweh be with you. That's the only way to live. 
It's to live under the provisions and the shade of Yahweh even as you're doing your mundane work. What an amazing example. He says we can only be blessed if we have Yahweh and His grace in our lives. And some have asked, you know, uh, does this mean that, that Boaz only hired people that were Christians? I, I don't think so necessarily. But I think he wanted all of them to recognize whether you're a Christian or not, you're never going to have peace and grace and the ability to work unless you are under Yahweh. And probably most of them who worked with him would eventually begin to follow Yahweh because of the way in which he responded. Because you can see the response of these men, right? And women. They say back to Boaz, may Yahweh bless you. They love this man so much because he wasn't just leading them, but he wanted to lead them to Yahweh even in their work and the way they thought about work. And by the way, this is... This is just a reflection of uh, the Aaronic blessing. Again, sometimes we use all of these verses in weddings and it's very appropriate, but you remember the blessing that the priests were supposed to say to the people? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you without which, without Christ, we can do nothing. And that was the way in which the priests were supposed to interact. Now catch this, this is the days of the judges. The priests had fallen asleep. There was idolatry in the land. So you know what happened? Boaz became like a priest for this little working community in his field. And even though there was no worship in the rest of the land, when you came into this man's workplace, the day was filled with worship. The day started with worship. And he, he recognized, we're not about grain. We're not about all these mundane things. All of these things are byproducts of recognizing God who is good, who is over us, without whom we have nothing. And all our joy is in Him. And therefore we work. Because He gives us the ability to work. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127 verse 1, they labor in vain who builds it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. What a great reminder, right? Start your day even recognizing with your work, not just if you're a pastor, but whatever you do, that everything comes from God. The ability to earn money, the ability to be productive comes from Him. And if you can have even that time of just prayer before you go into work and say, Lord, make this day a day where I recognize that you are in charge, even of the way in which I tap on my keyboard and what happens here. I would think the Lord would open in some ways, greater opportunities for praise and, and worship to Him, even in those mundane things in life. Whether we eat or we drink, we do it unto the glory of God. Well, not only does Boaz care through consecration, the first characteristic of godly power is consecration, but he also cares through counsel. He's a counselor. And what happens is, yeah, Boaz is the type of boss that knew immediately the faces of his employees. There are certain bosses that, you know, whether they're there or not, it doesn't matter. But I remember when I was working a secular job one time, uh, he was a boss that was always on the floor. I was working in the warehouse, and even though he was up on the top, he would always come down where we were packing boxes and sometimes start packing boxes with us. And he always wanted to know that we were doing everything that we were doing excellently. And there was that sense of just knowing the boss was with us. He's not just some guy that just, you know, is up there, gets his paycheck, and as long as we make sure that he has resources, he doesn't care. 
And so Boaz was a guy who was involved on the ground level and he immediately recognized, hey, there's a girl here that doesn't belong to my task force. He was that kind of man. He was a detail-oriented man. And so he, he brings in one of the, the head guys and he says to one of the reapers who was in charge of the reapers, verse 5, whose young woman is this? Nothing slips his attention. And he doesn't recognize her face. But what's interesting is he immediately asks a question that is not more, you know, why is she here? Did we negotiate the right terms? You know, what kind of salary did you talk about with her? How am I benefiting from this? You can see his heart. He's like, whose young woman is this? Why is this young girl here without a husband or a father? And, and my, my heart just breaks when I think about his concern. He's, he's not concerned even about, you know, she's stealing my wheat, man. He's, he's more concerned about why is nobody providing for this girl? That's the way in which he thinks. And he immediately gets to the issue of how are we going to counsel and care for this young woman? It's a man that is strong, again, like we said, not in the strength of money, but in the strength of the wealth of spirituality and righteousness. And again, it's not romance. I mean, he's looking at her as a young girl. He's looking at her literally, probably this term means that she's in her 20s, like she could be his daughter. And he's concerned for her future, not, you know, his. And he hears from his overseer, what does verse 6 say? The servant in charge of the reaper said, she is that young Moabite woman. And what that means is, you know, the, the bloggers and the newspapers and all that had already been talking about what Ruth had done. And everybody knew about it. And so he just had to be told a few details. She is that lady that came from Moab who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And there's almost a sense of frustration in this, this guy. She's a foreigner. She doesn't belong here. She's got refugee status. You know, we're citizens. <laughs> he doesn't have that same sense as Boaz necessarily. He even says, and she's been... She's been talking to me since morning. She said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she has remained from morning until now and she has been sitting in the house for just a little while. She hardly takes any breaks, he says. She's really annoying me. The idea is, you know, some people have talked about, oh, Boaz fell in love with Ruth and I don't see how you could see that at this moment because Ruth has been here since 4 a.m. in the morning and this idea of gleaning and reaping is not work that's an office desk job, but it's lying on the ground on your hands and your knees. And you're talking about from 4 a.m. now probably till the afternoon and totally, you know, maybe eight or nine hours of just back-breaking work with maybe your hair just filled with mud and there's sweat and all this kind of stuff. And there's no romance here, okay? There's just a sense of this is a woman who's working hard for her mom-in-law and ultimately for the God who has given her grace to be with the people of Israel. And he turns to Ruth, verse 8. And literally the words are, like a father would speak to a child. Come here, I want you to tell you something really important. You need to pay attention to this. Look at how he speaks to her. <laughs> There's that sense of just, I want to care for you. I want to make sure that you are provided for. He says, listen carefully. And in the Hebrew, that's an imperative. Come to me and listen to this. 
my daughter. Again, you can see the purity of his heart in all of this. He's not looking for marriage or any of those things. He's looking for her as a little daughter in the, in the community of Israel that is not being cared for, that doesn't have a man in her life. And he's saying, you need a man to provide for you. Not even as a husband, but just as a Christian man. He says, do not glean, verse 8, in another field. You don't need to keep searching here and there for more grain. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. You have my permission, you have my protection, I'm giving you a little you know, certificate of recommendation from Boaz, the owner of this field, and you don't need to worry about where you and Naomi are going to get sustenance from this time on. I am going to be the one that provides for you. And then he goes on to say, and this is again where you can see his attention to detail and care and counsel. He says, let your eyes be on the field, verse 9, which my maids reap and go after them. There's even that sense of wisdom. Stay with my maids, which is the girls. Don't go with the guys, because why? You can look at the end of verse 9. <laughs> Indeed, I have commanded the servants, and that's the idea of male servants, not to touch you. And so Boaz had noticed or heard, nothing escapes his attention, that some of the guys were bullying her. That's what guys do, right? And so there was some kind of, I don't want to make it sexual harassment or anything, but I think there was just that idea of you're a foreigner and you don't belong here and they were doing things to irritate her. And so Boaz had taken them aside in another private meeting and he said, you guys, if you touch this girl, I see her as my daughter, okay? I'm going to come after you. And there was that sense in which he began to just again shed his wings of protection over her in the same way that God sheds his wings over his people. He says in verse 9, when you are thirsty, you don't have to bring your own dabba from home, your own water from home, you know, your own tiffin from home. But he says, when you're thirsty, he says this, drink from what my manservants draw. Now, this is amazing. You remember, you know, in the Old Testament culture, it's the women usually that draw for the men. And Boaz is turning the tables. Maybe it's a punishment for those guys for what they did. <laughs> he said, you guys are going to draw water and she's going to drink your water, okay? And you're going to serve her. And he says, Ruth, I'm, I'm putting this all down so that you would realize that you can, you can rest in the provisions that come from God. You know, we need to see more of this in the church, don't we? A biblical chivalry. A biblical chivalry. A man that is protecting a woman without any thought of romance or marriage. We need to see more of this where in the church we have this sense of just purity and, and provision and protection for the people that are in our midst. And I think this is going to... Sometimes people talk about, you know, with the whole pornography and sexual revolution, how are we going to keep the church pure? And I say it's by having a biblical ideal of what men and women are supposed to be like. And when you come into the church, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. This is instructions for Timothy, but I think we can all apply this. Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. If there's older men here, don't see them as just men, but see them as fathers. And then younger men as brothers. And then catch this. Older women as mothers. You wouldn't misbehave with your mother. And then younger women as what? As your sisters. Think of them as your sisters in Christ. 
and allow that to help you to not see them as objects that you can use, but as women made in the image of God that you need to serve. Even before marriage, you know. Before marriage, you need to learn how to do that. Otherwise, you become terrible husbands <laughs> after marriage. Marriage is going to cure your, your selfishness. You have to think about being like Christ before you get married. God give us a sense of this chivalry and this compassion through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he also teaches us, Boaz, not only is he consecrated to God, not only is he a counselor that cares for Ruth in a way that is wise, but he also teaches us that he becomes a comfort, a comfort to the burdened. Verses 10 and, and following, then she fell on her face. Again, there was no sense of any impropriety. There was just a sense of, I'm an undeserving woman, and she falls on her face before Boaz, and she says, bows to the ground and says to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She recognizes her unworthiness. She recognizes the grace of God in Boaz. She recognizes what we see in James chapter 1, verse 26. Pure and undefiled religion is what? To look after widows and orphans in their distress. You know, today we're having all these debates about social justice and social injustice. And I was talking with some friends earlier about this fact. There is no separation of justice from the gospel. We don't have to create a separate gospel just for doing justice. If we are under the gospel, we will be people that become caring and compassionate. And that's what you see in Boaz. And Boaz says in verse 11, he says, it's not me. It's God's grace. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. I know all that you have done in counting the cost for the sake of Yahweh. May Yahweh, it's not me. Don't give praise to me. May Yahweh reward your work. May your wages be full. Everything that I do, I'm just a vessel, I'm just a channel. It is He who will reward you. Look to Him. What an amazing perspective He has. May your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You see that idea again? Under whose skirt you have come to find shade. It's not me. Then verse 13 she says this, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You have comforted my soul. I love those words from Ruth. She said, as I experience this grace that comes from Yahweh, there has come to be not necessarily wealth and riches in my life, but a deep peace in my soul. Isn't that what the gospel does? Especially for a refugee who had no parents or family or mother except for Naomi. It's like being in a desert and finding shade. The love of a Christian brother is like that. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I think I'm going to close here because our time is running short and we'll, we'll keep moving forward in the next session. But I was reminded as I was looking at this passage, my wife and I are seeking to share the gospel with a a lady, she's married in, in Goa, and she came from a Christian background, but she rejected the faith, and she walked away from it, and she moved into all kinds of New Age stuff and, and weird things. 
And then she found us and she said, you know, your family reminds me of the old days when I used to sit with my dad and mom and we would sing hymns. And so it, it was fun. We, we invited her home for a meal. And she said, you know, before the meal, some of my kids, they cheat and they start eating before prayer. And she said, don't you guys pray in this house? And I said, thank, thank you for reminding us. And let's hold hands. And we prayed. And, and she closed her eyes and she said, it's so good after 10 years to just hear grace before the meal. And we ate and we had, you know, good conversation. And even my kids were drawing it to Christ in a very natural way. And then afterwards, we, we sat down in the living room and we have a piano in our house. And we do this in the evening. We just started singing hymns. And she said, you know, I recognize those hymns. She came from Germany. She said, can, can I sing that in German? And she just came around the piano. And we sang, I don't know, we sang the whole hymnal, I think. And then she just said, you know, can I just lie down here for, for a few minutes because I've got all these anxieties in my life and you people just sing hymns. And it just helps me relax. And I think that's kind of what Ruth was talking about, about the comfort that the truth and the gospel can bring about. I think that is one of those things that is greater than any wealth or riches that we can offer people. It's the peace of Christ, isn't it? May God help us to be ambassadors of that peace. There is more strength in godliness than in anything else. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the lessons that we can learn from these dear saints 3,300 years ago that were just faithful in the midst of times of idolatry and, and discipline from you. They sought to live again by having their hearts fixed on you and your goodness and your grace and your redemption and the treasures that are in your right hand. Lord, help us even this day to live in such a way that we truly treasure and lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And through that, Lord, have a joy that no one can steal from us. And have a joy that is even an evangelistic joy that people would say, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? And we can point them to Christ. Use us, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.